My name is Era, and I'm the host of the Tamil Creator Podcast. I chat with creators from all over the world to share their stories and discuss hot topics in a way that I hope inspires, educates, and entertains you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Tamil Creator. I'm very excited today to introduce uh, the guest for today. His name is Suresh Das. I know a ton of you probably know who he is, but for those of you who don't, uh, he's a household name in the food scene in Toronto. Uh, he just actually, we were just chatting earlier and he mentioned he's about to launch a food section for a national newspaper. He can't tell me when, but that's, uh, that's awesome to, to hear. Uh, you've probably also been following the 200 plus restaurants that he's you know, featured so far in the CBC Food Guide and CBC Radio's morning, uh, Metro Morning. And he's also the, you know, one of the pioneers or slash godfather of the street food movement in Ontario. So if there's anything to know about food, especially in Canada, especially in Ontario, uh, Suresh is your guy. Uh, he also does, obviously because of the pandemic, not anymore, but he used to do food tours as well. But I'll let him kind of speak on that later. And I got to give a shout out to a friend of mine, Sarah Jade, who was super excited to kind of hear that I was chatting with uh, Suresh Das. So Sarah, this is for you. So now we'll kind of get into um, Suresh Das and in terms of, you know, let's get to, you know, start from the beginning, you know, um, everything in childhood and kind of those early ages are so formative in kind of what you become interested in, like who, the person you become. So tell us about, you know, the beginnings, like, you know, how you grew up, your family, your upbringing and how that sparked your food for love. Um, sure. I mean, love for food. Me, oh my goodness. Yeah. I appreciate you having me on your podcast. Uh, I've been listening to every episode since you launched. I didn't I didn't realize it was six months ago, but it felt I feel like pandemic has kind of stretched and thinned time and perception of time. So it feels like everything was yesterday, but also 10 years ago. Especially um, when you have kids. But, <laughs> yeah, especially when you have kids, but we're both new parents. Um, yeah, um, so I, um, I'm a food writer based out of Toronto. I was born in Colombo, Sri Lanka. Um, and I guess I would identify myself as um, I guess I guess Sri Lankan Canadian of Tamil descent is how I would identify myself in 2021. It's an ongoing journey. It's a journey that shapes and changes as I discover more about who I am and what I am. Um, so I grew up in Colombo for a few years before we kind of bounced around because my dad was a professor and he taught at a university. So that took us to Nigeria for a few years, uh, to other parts of uh, Southeast Asia. Um, so I I think I probably spent maybe 10 years in Colombo with my mom's family, my dad's family, my grandma, before we um, uh, left because of the Civil War and moved to Canada. Uh, and I, I moved to Canada when I was 12 years old, and I've been here uh, since then. We were, we were part of, I guess, the third wave of immigration. So like the, if the first wave was in the 70s to late 70s, and the second wave was like 80 to 89, we were like, 89 to like 2000. And how did how did your upbringing kind of spark your um, love of food, um, like growing up in Sri Lanka and then, you know, immigrating to Canada? Yeah, so I guess, I mean, I didn't, I didn't think about this at the time, because you're a kid and you wouldn't really have that lens. But uh, I was constantly surrounded by food in the kitchen. I, you know, whenever I felt like whenever someone needed to babysit me, they were always babysitting me in the kitchen or in the room adjacent to the kitchen. So there was always, you were always close to that activity. Um, probably because, you know, the, uh, the people in the families, especially women of the household, they were playing dual roles where they were taking care of kids, but also like putting food on the table and making sure that the house was running. 
so I, I have a lot of a lot of really vivid memories of just being in some sort of uh, three room kitchen where there was one section for cooking, one section for prep and one sort of like area that led into the garden. And there was this constant sort of activity of women. And it was always women that would come and go prep and say hello, um, come and cook, come and eat and whatnot. So um, from an early age, I understood how protein ended up on the table. So like, you know, like the, a chicken would arrive alive in to the backyard or to the alley. And then he would watch, you know, the, the person that br brought this chicken, the purveyor, he would, you know, um, butcher the chicken in front of you. Uh, and I was like, I think I was probably like five or six when I first saw this. Um, and then I, you see that being prepped, cleaned and prepped and cooked and being consumed for a meal later on. So that connection was always there. Um, I didn't really think much to, to question it just because it, it became such a natural part of life. And then also then you constantly saw how like dosa batter was being made. So like how they would grind rice and like mix it with water in this really large, massive mortar and pestle that they would have to like churn with like both their hands and how that batter would become like this sort of pancake batter like thing and how that would be stored and fried and whatnot uh, and, and, and cooked on, on, the, on the stone and whatnot. So the, the food sort of like coding was always there in my DNA from a young age. But um, it was, I mean, it was strictly Sri Lankan. It was strictly Tamil um, with maybe some Sinhalese uh, dishes peppered in there. Um, so I didn't really have like world knowledge of food until really after we left to go to Nigeria. And then Nigeria was just kind of like, I guess some sort of secondary education because now you, now you, I, I met black people for the first time in my life when I was in Nigeria. Uh, I met an entirely different culture when I was in Nigeria for the first time, uh, understanding how food looked very different, tasted similar, but also very different. Um, how people ate differently, how people ate similarly. So that kind of like added, it gave me an, another slight perspective, but um, the lid didn't come off the pot. Like, I mean, like my curiosity didn't really peak until we came to Canada. Um, and then, you know, coming to Canada, like I met so many different people of different backgrounds for the very first time. Um, and that's when I guess I felt like my race and identity wasn't something that could limit my experiences. Like I could still identify a certain way, but then still try other experiences and still try other cuisines. Um, so after moving to Canada is when really I felt like I was given access to learn about other cultures. Curious, because I mean, you because I, I grew up in Sri Lanka too, but I, I left when I was three, so I don't really have a lot of like distinct memories. But mm -hmm. with food, the way we ate in say Sri Lanka, even like Nigeria versus like, you know, growing up in a you know big city like Toronto in Canada, mm. how was the food experience? Because I, I think of it as like, you know, when I go to places that are not city that are more like Eastern uh, or like, you know, even I call them developing, I feel like there's more of a fellowship where like, you know, eating together at the table, versus kind of just passing by or just very quickly. Mm. Um, I, I know for you, it might be different because you're, you're into food and you might've um, seen it differently, but did you see a difference when like, kind of as you're growing up to versus kind of how you consume food sometimes maybe like in Toronto, um, you know, in your home or, or not um, really? Well, I mean, there, I've, there are some observations to be made um, about food back home in Sri Lanka when I was a kid and now. I didn't think about this much until I, I, we moved 
from Sri Lanka to Canada in 1990. And then um, because, you know, this, there was a lot of personal trauma with leaving Sri Lanka and a lot of just emotional baggage. So I didn't actually go back for many, many years just because I didn't, I didn't want to. Um, I had a lot of personal feelings about uh, my childhood in Sri Lanka. Uh, there, was, there was a lot of positive, but there was some really bad negative uh, feelings as well. So because of that, I actually didn't end up going back to Sri Lanka until about 25 years later. Mm. So for after 25 years, um, I was invited um, as a, there was a contest by World Nomads. Um, it's this uh, insurance company that also publishes a food blog. Um, they put out a call for recipes and they basically said, send, send us your favorite personal recipe and tell us a story about it. Um, and one of the, like, one of my goals in life has been to try to learn my mom's cooking and my grandmother's cooking, who, who's like long passed away now. Uh, and one of the, the recipes that I make regularly every year is crab curry. So this is something that like, I've like, like learned my mom's and grandma's technique, but I've kind of made it my own. And I, so I submitted that recipe and it won. And they said, do you want to go to Sri Lanka? And I said, of course, I'd love to go to Sri Lanka. And that happened to be the 25th anniversary. So, um, you know, like, it's funny when you, you leave a place and you have such memories of like the way buildings looked, the way the grass smelled or the way people talked or the sounds of the street and how that is distorted because you're a kid and you're interpreting um, these things through a very kid-like lens and eyes and ears and whatnot. And when you go as an adult, you see things as an adult and that building was not that big. It was like way smaller than I remember it. The church wasn't that big or whatever. But um, one of the, the, this is a long answer to your question, but one of the things that I noticed right away when I went back and I, I started going back every year, once a year since then, is that um, there were restaurants. There were a lot of restaurants. There was an actual dining culture. And I say that because when I was a kid in Sri Lanka, we didn't really eat in restaurants. Um, and this is a theory, a theory that I've, I've been sort of working on for the last little while. Our pattern was always, um, if school was out because of um, a terrorist attack or something, um, we would be at home for months and my dad wouldn't appreciate that. So he would take me to his computer school because he ran a computer school. Um, he's run a computer school for like 60 years of his life, I want to say. Um, so I would go there and I would like do my whole homework in his office and then we would drive home at the end of the night. That way he can control like my productivity and whatnot. Um, but in, in those months and days, what I noticed was that we would leave home and go to a destination. We wouldn't really detour. We wouldn't really go to a restaurant. And if we were going to enjoy a meal, it would always be takeout. So there were many, many, many times where my dad would leave the office. We would get takeout from two places. It was always my mom's favorite Chinese restaurant um, and my dad's favorite like Sri Lankan short eats place, a Tamil place. Oh, and we would get this food and then we'd come home and we would set up this like smorgasbord on the table with all the food. And then we would eat together as a family with my uh, aunt or grandma, whatnot. Um, so my theory is, I, I didn't think about it much then, but now I realize that that was probably a byproduct of the civil war because people didn't feel that safe being out uh, in Colombo, right? And there were a lot of checkpoints. It was just very... It was. It was. It didn't. It wasn't enjoyable to go go out and eat in restaurants. At least that's my perception. And my my parents kind of confirmed this for us, for our family. I'm sure there were restaurants and other families ate at it, but within our larger family, it, it seemed like a, it was a real thing that we would not go out to eat because we were just like not in the 
not in the safest frame of mind. Um, we also lost family to like bombings and random attacks. So, so my, my, my sort of, my, I guess my initial uh, experience or inspiration of eating outside of my mom's home was always takeout. And then when you move to Canada and then you see the Sri Lankan diaspora here, the Tamil diaspora, which is like the largest outside of Sri Lanka, um, the, way, the way they open restaurants, there was never a restaurant that had a dining room. It was always takeout. So is there a connective tissue here between the culture we left behind and the baggage we bring here? And because the, the dining culture back there was takeout and short eats for a very, very long time, because it had to be, because it was safer, did that somehow get transported over here? Is that why for many, many years, you only saw takeout? Wow, that's a great theory. I actually never thought of that. Like, obviously, like you have more context than I do, but I just never thought of that. I always wondered why there, I mean, in the last couple of years, there's been more sit down like places, but yeah, you're right. I, I, I never thought of that. I just assumed that like we just always like takeout was kind of the thing to do. It's so interesting. I, I mean, I would encourage you to talk to your family about this and just kind of get their perception. I ask them, you know, kind of coldly. Don't don't um, give them any bias. But I think, I think there is some truth to that. Um, and I think obviously we've seen restaurants open up with dining spaces in the last ten years. Of course, I mean, I'm not saying that there are no uh, Sri Lankan restaurants with dining spaces, but I think prevalently, like 95% of them are no dining, and you walk in and you see display cases. And I think that's related. And the and the ones that have dining spaces are open by second generation. That's, I was just about to say that. Yeah. They have no connection to the They have experience. no connection, no baggage, yes. um, right? So, uh, and, and the weird thing is when you go back to Sri Lanka, it's like you, you have this blueprint in your head and you go back and you're like, wait a second, there are restaurants everywhere. People are eating on patios. They're eating in restaurants. It is so lively um, and so much fun. And there are takeout places too, but it's, it is a very different interpretation of the cuisine here. Um, which, which is fascinating. I think it's a byproduct of immigration and, and forced immigration, right? Yeah, before, and you know, that's, a, that's awesome, like what you just said. And before we kind of get into the next part of your story, I thought I'd ask you, because I mean, I'm sure people listening would want to know, in terms of like all of all the spots you kind of go to around the city, where are your favorite spots? And maybe you can even like break it down by, you know, a specific type of, you know, treat or like shorty to whatever it is. Where is your favorite spots in the city specifically for Sri Lankan slash Tamil food uh, in the city? Like just name a couple of places and maybe exactly what you like there. Uh, sure. So, I mean, like it is kind of all over the place. I, I tend to eat based on my emotions. Um, we, I mean, our, we live in a, in, a, in a city where we're incredibly spoiled, right? We, you know, we have so much convenience to all kinds of different food. You and I can talk for five minutes about what we want to eat for lunch and you can say like, I want Ethiopian or sushi. And within a 20 minute drive, we can go find the best version of that, which is, you can't say that about many cities in the world, right? Like, I mean, I've, tra I've traveled quite extensively and like, I always miss Toronto because we're so spoiled. Um, so for me, I literally will eat based on my mood, um, depending on what I'm craving and what I feel like. So this week, for some reason, the last couple of days, um, it's been Ethiopian food. Um, I, I go through a lot of cookbooks every every month um, just for research and for inspiration and for technique. Um, so I've been reading a couple of Ethiopian just journals and cookbooks uh, because I have a column coming up. 
so it's kind of ingrained in my head that I wanted to, to I wanted to really keep eating this version of like you know like what we're used to seeing as curry but presented in a very different way a version of what we're used to seeing as dosa but presented in a very different way as injera so I've, I've just been kind of craving those flavors that sort of fermenty sour flavored injera with like some version of like a, a stewed chicken or beef so there is a luckily I, I, we live um um east danforth um so near uh, Maine and Danforth, and the Danforth has an incredible, incredible range of cuisines right now. I, I would say it's the most exciting street to eat through uh, in the in the city. Um, and Danforth is known particularly for the number of Ethiopian restaurants, and a lot of them have been there for many, many years. But there is one that does not get a lot of love, um, and it's called Desta D E S T A Market. It is essentially a um, convenience store, a butcher shop, a spice sort of store and a hot counter um, where they have like six dishes. Nothing is in English. So there's, there are photos. So you have to know what something looks like if you want to um, say the name or you just have to ask. And, and it's run by this intergenerational, I, I want to say three, three generations of women, a grandmother, mother, and a daughter that run it. And um, because it's not a restaurant, because it's not a takeout place, they do everything in small batches, which means that the flavors are just way more pronounced. Um, Desta Market, uh, the Dorawat. The Dorawat is essentially a stewed chicken, uh, sort of saucy stewed chicken dish that's served with a boiled egg um, and injera. And it's like wonderful. It's like, think, think of like what uh, we uh, Sri Lankan Tamosa perceive as mutton curry, but a thicker version of the curry. So like the curry has really been cooked down until it's like, it clings on to whatever you dip it in. It's not watery at all. Um, they make an excellent version of that. Um, there is an Indonesian place in Scarborough. Um, and I, I would say, I mean, like, I, if you want to know where I like to eat, I, this is going to sound cliche, but I was driving today and I was saying to myself, Scarborough really has such an incredible array of cuisine. An incredible. Yeah. And, you, you know, you just by just saying it, the best Chinese food is in Scarborough or the best... Sri Lankan foods is in Scarborough is not doing it justice. Um, there is there are so many tiny tiny places that you would not find out about unless you spent time walking through that plaza or block. Um, like for example, today I was at Sandhurst, uh, sorry, not Sandhurst Circle. I was at Sky City View, um, which is uh, Midland and Finch. Which I mean, like oh, like you, you can go to one intersection, Midland and Finch. There's a plaza behind a plaza behind a plaza. There are four plazas that yes. you can eat through. Um, a, an incredibly large concentration of hot pot restaurants because hot pot has been popular for the last couple of years. Um, probably more hot pot than any other part of the country, probably in this one intersection. And like you, you see all that and you see all these patios and all these signs and it's great. But if you look deeper and deeper and you go behind the plaza to the fourth or fifth plaza, there's this tiny Korean restaurant um, called Mrs. Park's Kitchen, tiny. And she does, again, four, four, four or five dishes on the menu. Uh, she does a kimchi jjigae, um, like a stew. So it's basically imagine like um, pho or like ramen, but the Korean version of that would be super fiery, super hot with Lovely. chunks of tofu or pork in there. Like everyone has a different version of it. Um, like literally, like you're supposed to eat it. It's supposed to be so hot temperature wise that it's supposed to burn the roof of your mouth. <laughs> that's the idea 
Um, um, I look, I, I still regularly go drive to Scarborough for patties. Um, patty time is one of my favorite places to go to. It's on Lawrence. Um, but I also like patty cake and ice cream. I, I would say patty cake and ice cream, which is on Eglinton uh, near Midland, is probably the best patty shop, hands down, um, of all the ones because he's just taking a very chefy approach to making his patties. Um, for Sri Lankan food, um, so my mom, my mom's go-to has always been Nanda uh, Bakery at, uh, uh, I guess, like Birch Round and Finch. But they've expanded just so aggressively. I feel like the quality has just changed. Um, so I still go to Martin Bakery. I think that's my go-to for Kotharoti. Um, and then I go to um, the pizza places to get mutton curry pizza. I think I feel like mutton curry pizza is a truly, yes. truly uniquely Scarborough. Yes. <laughs> uh, um, so like what, um, Spicy Brothers, I think, is the name of the place at... Uh, Markham and Steel's across from Spiceland. They are the ones that invented mutton curry pizza in 2013 or 14. And um, they make their own mutton curry. You order a pizza and then you get like this smear of mutton curry on it. It doesn't sound like it makes sense, but it tastes well, just absolutely delicious. Well the, first it, time, right? well, the first time I had mutton pizza, mutton curry pizza was I think when they did Tamil Fest, like the first one, maybe it was like three, four years ago. And you're just walking through all the stalls and then like you run, you know, you start running into like the people that start doing fusion food. And I saw like two or three booths with mutton pizza. I think right. I tried like a slice at each place. And yeah, it's amazing. Um, have you, you know, for patties, uh, I've tried them at Warden Station. Like I, I used to always go to Kennedy. I never actually went to Warden a lot. I, so this is something I did when I was like maybe a few years ago. But do you believe that uh, in the hype in the Warden Station, like Jamaican patties or... Do you think it's overhyped? Just uh, it's overhyped, um, but like, I, I think we should justify it. So, the reason why um, subway station patties hold such reverence is because it all comes down to context, time, and place, right? So, like you're a kid, you have two bucks in your pocket, you're waiting for that stupid bus to come through the tunnel at Warden Station, and you need a snack just enough to keep you satisfied until you get home, and um, you're cold. It's winter. And the one thing that you have that you can buy that you can afford that is warm that you can hold in your hands and eat is a patty. So of course the, the patty at the warden station, subway station is going to be the best patty ever because it's all about context, right? It's all about how your brain you know, wires that information. But um, just to clarify, they're all coming from the same place. All the subway station patties are coming from the same place. So anyone that argues that one is better than the other is already showing me their bias um, <laughs> because maybe they spend more time at that one subway station. Um, I just I just find that like with anything food related, the the larger the quantity you want to make, the lower the quality, right? Um, it's just plain and simple. It's just it's 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 mathematics. So um, the Warden Station patties were good at one point, but they're absolutely just generic right now they're just mediocre but I, as i said on cbc before listen ara the best patty is the one in your hands <laughs> it's all about context no and it's funny you kind of uh, mentioned that as um i don't know if you know but like my my dad used to run a restaurant for like six seven years i used to help mm -hmm. him um so do you know where um uh I think it's called Samosa King at uh, Middlefield and Finch. Yes, yes, of course. So they have like that, you know, we can kind of get takeout. They have a yes. restaurant beside it. So 
they bought that restaurant for my dad. So my dad ran it for like six, seven years. Oh, it used to be called Rico Restaurant. Uh, yeah. It was like one of the first, I think, um, Sri Lankan or Tamil restaurants. I think the other one at that time was uh, the one at Kennedy and Ellesmere. I think it was called Opera. Hopper Hut. Yeah. So we were like one of the first two. So I, like my like me and my siblings, like we, especially me, I would go there after school, help out. My summers oh. would be there. I gained like 20, 30 pounds because my parents didn't obviously pay us. They paid us in food. So I, right. you know, so many Portello. I had so many Portellos, mutton rolls. I made kotoroti, dosa. So it, the reason I bring this up is one part of food is, you know, like you said, context. And I think big part of it is food. There's an emotion related to food. So like you said, when you ate that food or when you, who made it for you, it's kind of different. Like, you know, when you go to school and you, you bring your own food, like a sandwich or whatever that you made at home, it doesn't taste as great as when your friend brings that same sandwich that their mom made and you eat it for whatever reason, it tastes better. So I just thought I kind of just bring that up and like, you know, food, I think a big part of food is emotion. Like you're saying, like when I eat my parents' food uh, or when I eat Tamil food, now that I don't like live at home, I think of them and like, you know, yeah, it's just kind of, yeah, it's, all, it's context in terms of like where you're eating it and who you're eating it with and what mood are you in when you're eating it, right? Yes. Uh, how many, how many, how often, you know, does a bowl of soup not taste the same because you're in a bad mood, right? And you've had that bowl of soup before and it's been so nourishing and, and sustaining otherwise, but uh, because you're not in a good mood to enjoy it, like you, you, you can't interpret it. Um, I wanted to ask you a question about Rico. So yes. is that, is that the space that they tore down when the, the Samosa place expanded? Yes. When they, when, yeah. Okay. Yes. Wow. Part, part of it. Part of it. Yeah. I think I don't, I haven't been there in a while, but like, I remember they had something called Samosa or like, maybe it was like a, a, their restaurant or banquet hall that they connected to that part of it. So I don't know what they did with the space now, but that's what I remember. Um, so when would it have closed down? Hard to think. I, I'm trying, I, sometime in high, when I was in high school. So I got to think about that. Maybe when I was in grade 11. So like the early ago. 2010s earlier than that okay so yeah. I, i'm I, i'm gonna just check my photos to see if i had eaten there i remember the dining space i remember yeah. going in there i remember um i remember what samosa the samosa place looked like before they tore down the the, the space next door so I, I wonder if i have any photos i'm gonna check that'd be awesome yeah it's it just a lot of good memories and just like you know my dad started the restaurant because i think he had you know i think like most immigrants like it was very mm-hmm. hard to be available for your kids or like, you know, especially when you have four and mm-hmm. working a job that's, you know, maybe not paying well. So a lot of them turned to be, my, my dad became very entrepreneurial and that was kind of one of the yeah. first of many things that he tried. So this episode is sponsored by nobody. That's right. Nobody. So if you could be kind enough to hit that subscribe button, that would mean a lot to me. I want to kind of jump into, you know, we talked a lot about food and emotions and all that but I want to kind of get back to your story where I was very like not, I, I don't know why I was shocked but I was very surprised to like learn that you did you were like in the IT side for so long yeah. I always just think of you as like the, the the guy that just knows about food like you're the food content like guy yeah. but like I was very surprised to find like you were in IT and then you kind of obviously made this move there so tell us about kind of you know you're working you know you're on the IT side and it's very like <laughs> you know think of like traditional South Asian job that's kind of you know, very traditional. And then you kind I of know, jumped into, right, right. You, you jumped into kind of content writing. Um, and then you obviously made it your full-time thing and you're doing all these amazing things. So how did that switch happen? Or like, yeah, tell us about that. Okay. I'm going to give you the slightly longer version of it. Um, it. 
So my, my, obviously my dad had a training school. I mean, he's had a tra training school my entire life where he would teach people um, a variety of different sort of computer related courses from programming to um, troubleshooting, to building, to networking. So back home in Colombo, he had two locations. And when school was out, like I said, when we would have problems at school with, um, you know, just a civil war, I would be at his office all day, every day. So uh, I think the youngest I was, was probably eight or nine when he would put me in front of a computer and like, essentially it started off by playing video games, right? Like, you know, I'd play like Dig Dug all day. And then like, occasionally I would look over and I would teach someone like programming in basic or C plus and, you know, be, be somewhat sort of semi-interested in it. In it. But uh, I think he did it because he wanted me to be comfortable in the space and he wanted me to be comfortable in and around computers. He never forced me to learn anything, but by putting me in that space, my curiosity just peaked. I was just curious to know what these machines were and how I could uh, work with them. So um, so I, I would spend a lot of time at his school. And then when he moved to Canada, um, when I was in high school, I guess he just had that itch again that he wanted to go back into IT. So a couple of years after we moved to Canada and I was in high school, he opened a training school in Scarborough. Um, there's a version of it uh, still. Um, and um, the school here was essentially a school that focused on certification courses for IT professionals. So if you wanted to go into IT to like, uh, uh, to, like to, to be a network engineer or whatever at a company and to manage servers, you would take these courses offered by Microsoft or Cisco and you would get a certification in them. And then you would you know, easily enter the field with a, a well-paying job. So when I was 14 or 15, I would moonlight at my dad's office when I was you know, not in school, um, just because he needed help. And um, by nature of that, because I was just so comfortable around computers, I actually started doing the certification courses myself. And I became actually the youngest kid in Canada at the time to get some of these certifications. So like the A plus or the INET plus or the Microsoft certified systems engineer, Microsoft certified trainer, I got all these certifications before I turned 18. Wow. Um, Cisco, CCNA, CCNP. Um, so I was just very good at it. Um, and what happened then was when I was 17 or 18, now still in school, I actually started teaching at my dad's school. So like I would be the instructor. Because what, was it, what was it called, sorry? What was it called, the place? Micro, microbus. Microbus. I got to see if that yeah. rings a bell. So the location was, in, um, I, I'll, I'll tell you why you may know where it, is, where it was. Um, do you remember that Sri Lankan grocery store that was like the, the, the center of town near Kennedy and Finch? Oh, uh, Siva Uncle's. Um, yeah, Siva. Yeah, oh, Siva Uncle's like my dad's good friend. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, it was in that building. Yeah. Yeah. So it was oh, like, was it where the RG Center was? RG Center? Yeah. The fourth yeah, I mean, floor? Oh, okay. There was no, another was like main, tutoring place I went to. It was on the main pick. floor overlooking Finch Road. Okay. Uh, that was one of the locations. Uh, and then we had another one in um, Mississauga. Okay. Um, so, yeah, like I, I started teaching. I actually was, I, I started teaching. I, I got this following of people that would like, specifically when they would enroll for the course, they would ask if I'm the instructor. Wow. Um, so then I started teaching in Mississauga and in Toronto. So this, this sort of like this career path started. I had never worked anywhere else, right? I'm like 18, 19, 20 now. I had never worked anywhere else in my life, only for my dad. Um, I, was, I, I had now been teaching for like two or three years, um, teaching at every, every night, uh, Monday to Friday, and teaching Saturdays and Sundays. 
So it kind of like burnt me out socially. I didn't really have much of a social life, but I was just, I, I was good at it. I was really good at teaching. And I, I, I must have taught over a thousand people by now that have gone on to get certifications and, and you know, blossom on their IT careers. So um, there came a breaking point though, because I was overworked and it created a rift between my parents and myself because I just felt like I was being taken advantage of. Um, and I guess, you know, when you're in a situation like this where you're working for your family and you meet people that are taking the course and then leaving and then getting jobs and they tell you about the time they work at Microsoft or Google or whatever, and you feel like you, you could never do that because you'd abandon the family. So that allure was always there. Um, so I, my, my dad, um, he, we, didn't, we didn't get along for a little while and I just basically told him that I wanna go and seek some real world experience. I, I, I need to be able to go out and see what else is out there. Uh, and then I basically started working for a number of prominent uh, tech firms, um, which allowed me the ability to climb up the ladder really quickly because I had a very specific skill set and I already had experience, uh, instructor level experience, right? So um, I climbed up the ladder in my, on the technology side of things, on the um, support side of things. Um, to the point where like I was flying to different cities across the world to fix problems uh, as a support person. Uh, this, this job doesn't exist anymore because now everything is done remotely. Mm -hmm. um, but because of this job, I was allowed the ability to experience world cuisine on a whole other level that I was not able to experience in Scarborough. Um, and what I, what I mean by that is to understand the origin of something, to understand where something came from, to understand how the, what pace food is moving there versus what pace food is moving here, right? Um, you have to understand that the GTA and Canada is this large mass of um, international people, people that have left the country for whatever reason and they've come here, which means that by theory, anything that they cook here is sort of this like type of food that is preserved because it reminds them of a time back home. Right. So like when you go to the short eats place, they're cooking mutton rolls and fish patties the way they would have had it when they left Sri Lanka in the 80s. But when you travel to Sri Lanka, you see that food has already moved on. It's already progressed. So now there are kids that are doing like, I don't know, like curry laksa mutton patties. They're doing something else. Right. So it's this idea of like past and present and future. So when I when I started traveling in IT, that was really my first time experiencing the future of food. I was able to see like, whoa, like I've had Vietnamese food in Toronto, but it wasn't like this. And why is it different? So um, I did that for two years. And um, so like, I'm in my like mid to late twenties by now. Um, and it really burnt me out um, in a different way. Again, it felt like, you know, um, when you're in IT, nobody's ever really happy to see you because, you come in because you, you know something they shit us at the fan and they want you to fix it. So nobody's happy to see you. They don't even offer you a glass of water. And you walk into these cold rooms uh, with these humming servers. You push a few buttons. You always regret being there because you say to yourself, wow, I could have really fixed this on the phone, but that is not an option on the table right now. I have to be here to show face. And then you go and you have a meal somewhere and the meal is the only like positive part of the the tra travel and then you go back home and then you do it all over again like over and over 
So uh, I guess a light bulb went off in my head where I said to myself, okay, um, I'm eating alone. I'm learning a lot about food. There's no, there are no smartphones. This is pre-smartphone, right? So there's oh, no, yeah, no distraction. Like when I'm sitting at a bar, I'm, my distraction is the person in front of me. Like there's no phone. Uh, and I learned how to take photos during this time. So this was like in the early 2000s. Um, I said to myself, hey, could I like just start a site um, and see if I can make money doing that instead of what I'm doing right now? Um, I, was, I was earning a really good living. I, I, I should not have left IT, but I was just so tempted by the idea of doing something you love for a living, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so I, and you know, I was in a very unique position. This was a very unique time. I would never do this again because uh, <laughs> I don't think the opportunity is there now. But a very, I was in a very unique situation in a sense that I had all the abilities I needed to be able to get this content off the ground. So I was my own photographer. I wrote, I coded, right? I built the website. I saw that people were launching um, WordPress blogs at the time. Blogs were very, very hot in the early 2000s, as you probably know. Yes. Um, I hated WordPress, so I decided, you know what? I'm going to just code my own thing. So I had the ability to do all that, which really put me in a very, very unique position in Toronto as like probably the first blogger, definitely the first food blogger. Um, and then and I did that for a number of years side by side with IT, where I was, I still had my gig with the government of Ontario, where I built their email system. Um, and um, I still like moonlit as a, a food writer. Um, and then it kind of just like the scales tipped from there. I, I was doing something that was unique that nobody else was where I was profiling these independent small shops that were not getting a lot of press because that's where I grew up. I grew up in Scarborough. I'm comfortable going to these trauma places and telling their stories because I know who they are. Um, nobody else was doing that really. So, um, I started to get attention for that. Um, I, I did a newsletter and the newsletter, at one point reached 74,000 uh, subscribers. This was when newsletters were first hot, like the very, very first time. Um, so it kind of like, it snowballed from there. I kind of created my own path. It's, it's pretty crazy because like you said, like, I mean, maybe that opportunity isn't there now, but content creation was not even a thing. I think it's like, it was like looked down upon just like entrepreneurship. Like when I first started, it wasn't like the thing it is now. So now that it's like being a content creator, especially on the food side is like more cool. How did your family and friends take, you know, your decision eventually when you kind of, you know, um, I know you're kind of doing both the IT and moonlighting on the food side, but once you kind of cut off ties on the IT side and focus more on the food side, like content creation on, you know, the different opportunities that you had, how did they feel about that? Like, did you get a lot of flack or like where people are like, oh, wow, that's really cool. Like, tell us about that as well. Oh, the, the, I did not have a single supporter in my friend circle or my family circle because um, every, everyone thought that it was r- ridiculous for me to leave IT. I was getting paid really well. I was at the literal top of my game in terms of support. I could have gotten any um, support-related job that I wanted, I guess, at that point. Um, it was, and it was, a, it was a long road, but I, I got to that point and then I was, I was leaving it just as things were really, really financially rewarding and career-wise rewarding. So, I mean, like, I, I mean, I joke around with my parents now, but it was probably two years where my dad didn't, didn't really talk to me because he was like, what are you doing? Like, I set you up for success. I put you in front of a computer at nine 
and you became this this thing, this machine, and you know, you it was perfect and it was great, and like you followed my design, my biological design, etc. <laughs> But um, but so yeah, for a couple of years they weren't supportive. They didn't understand it. They didn't know that you know like yeah they, they understood the idea of journalists and journalists getting paid. But I'm not a journalist. I'm just a food writer. And they didn't know that I could make my own living without being a writer for like a a Toronto Star or a Globe and Mail, right? Because I was doing it on my own. So it wasn't just the fact that I was a writer. They were like, wait, you're writing for yourself? Like you're not writing for someone else? So. Basically, nobody is willing to take a chance on you and you want us to think this is a good um, life decision. Um, and I guess the only turning point really was when I was featured in the newspaper for something. Um, my photo was in the newspaper. And then from that day on, it's like my mom will still text me every time a CBC episode airs or like she sees my name somewhere or like if someone talks to her at a restaurant and says, oh my God, you're like Suresh's mom. So like, you know, the, the adulation came as soon as uh, I was in a newspaper because for them, that's how they measure the success. External validation. Yeah, that's yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, you brought up CBC Food Guide and like your, your segment there. How did that opportunity come? I mean, you know, you're building up your, your name and it took a while, especially in the content game. It's really around doing something authentically and doing Ooh. it for a long time, often with no reward. So I imagine you're doing this and you're probably not expecting anything for a while. So how did things start to kind of really shake up for you? Was it like the food tours you did or, and then how did that lead to this, obviously like this opportunity at CBC, but obviously some other ones you're kind of getting as well, like in terms of this food segment, you know, in a national newspaper. So, yeah, I mean, I, aside from writing from my own site, I found it really difficult to get someone to give me um, space to, to write on, on whether it's print or whether it's online. There was just so much rejection. I mean, like, like hundreds of rejection letters or, or responses. I want to say. Um, so I just felt I felt kind of like just burnt out, but also equal parts just burnt out from the rejection and also just like angry and annoyed that I couldn't find my own footing in the industry in my own space. I wanted my own room. Um, so I basically just took to Twitter to just be as loud as I could be on Twitter with what I was doing. Um, keep in mind at this time now, I'm putting money out of my own pocket to um, fund my eating. Um, I don't accept free meals from restaurants. I, I never have. I try to pay as much as I can. Um, I mean, like, and, and people, uh, people are so generous in the industry and they want to compensate you. They want, they want to, to host you. But um, I've always thought that I, the story would be more honest if I paid for the food myself. So I was, I was doing all that and it was creating frustration within me that, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm doing it the right way. I'm not accepting freebies. I'm not shilling. And I'm still not getting the attention that I want. So what I would do is I would use Twitter as a sandbox for all the excursions and the food tours and whatever else. Uh, because my newsletter had reached a, a, a sort of like a tipping point in terms of subscribers, I would get a lot of people interested in food tours on the newsletter. So, I mean, I've been doing food tours now for about 15 years. So I would do like one or two tours a month. And then it eventually became like four or five a month, uh, basically taking people to the favorite places that I eat. I would put that content on Twitter. So like snippets of here and there, like uh, photos of kitchen access or photos of like behind the scenes or like uh, special dishes that you wouldn't normally find if you were a regular at the restaurant. So because of that, I started to get a, a following on Twitter rather quickly because it was just content that you wouldn't see anywhere else. It's certainly not something you would see on like a blog to you at the time or a Toronto life. 
Um, so the, I started to essentially, I guess, a long story short, I started to garner a lot of uh, fans in the editorial departments of newspapers and magazines. Uh, and one of, so one, of, one of these people was Matt Galloway, who is the former host of uh, CBC Metro Morning. <clears throat> and he um, was a huge fan of my work on Twitter and um, constantly commented. We'd shared a, a few meals together. And I, I believe he pulled in his producers and he said, um, we should do a, like a regular food thing with Suresh because he's doing all this regular content on Twitter. It speaks to where we are as a city right now in terms of the pulse, in terms of diversity, in terms of how we eat. So let's like, let's get it as part of programming. Uh, and there was no food content on, on the show. So uh, they approached me, which like never happens, like rarely happens. For the first time in my life, someone approached me to say, hey, like, here's a platform. We want to give you autonomous power. Like, we don't want to tell you what to do. We want you to tell your story the way you want to. Um, and that is still true to the day. Like, I mean, even like this week's column, the one I'm about to file tomorrow, my editors don't know what I'm going to file until they get it. And that's a, that's control that I've maintained because it allows me to tell the stories I want to tell without following a trend, without like doing oh, let's do like, I don't know, like the Sri Lankan restaurant this week because Sri Lanka is in the news kind of thing, right? I've always done it my way. I've always gone where I want to go. So CBC really provided me with that platform, um, you know, and, and allowed me to kind of stretch my wings um, to the point where like, you know, one day I'll take you to Niagara, one day I'll take you to Ajax, one day I'll take you to like Guelph. Um, and, that, and then from there on, things kind of just snowballed. I think, you know, it's a very large platform. It's a, it's got a massive audience. It's kind of crazy to, to kind of to feel it when, when you hear it secondhand through restaurateurs, when they when they call you up and tell you like how loud it got in, uh, uh, in in the restaurant like uh, weeks and months later, um, and also you know the number of emails that you get. So it's like it's it sounds like you know you get the feeling that because it's radio, you can't really measure how big it is. But it is crazy. It's like insanely like popular, um, and um, it's it's allowed me to kind of like selfishly preach and be a cheerleader for how diverse Southern Ontario is, right? Not just Scarborough. Did you know that every time you left a five out of five review for this podcast, a Tamil parent lets their child pursue a career in the creative arts? Okay, that's probably not true. But if there's a chance that it is, do you really want to jinx it? Leave a review. Do it for the young creative in you. So you went from getting, I assume like you kind of cold emailed or like cold called as many different kind of possible outlets that would be a good platform for you and you were getting these rejections. Now you got this, you know, this um, outlet that rarely ever reaches out to anybody to do something, they're doing something with you. What are the, you know, without going to specifics, like how does somebody get concept, uh, uh, compensated for creating a piece like that or a segment like that on CBC? Um, and like, you know, do you get certain coverages in terms of expenses of producing the segment? Like, how does that work? Yeah, so there's a weekly um, compensation uh, package for in terms of like, I get paid for being on the radio. I get paid, paid for the article that I write and the video that I produce. So there's a, you get paid weekly um, per content item. So per, per article, per feature. That's how it works. I'm still a freelancer, so I'm not a full-time employee. I don't get any benefits. And I've, I've preferred that way because uh, I can I can do way more damage. Uh, I mean, damage meaning that I can have a larger impact as a freelancer because I can I can put my foot down and say these are the stories I want to tell, 
no, I don't want to tell your grilled cheese story this week. I want to tell this story this week. Um, as a full-time employee, you kind of give up a lot of those, a lot of that power. Um, it's kind of counterintuitive. Uh, um, so yeah, it's like I get paid I, essentially with anything that I do, whether it's a speaking engagement on food or whether it's a written article or a video, it's basically a paid per content item. And when you're kind of negotiating these rates, how is the conversation now versus like, you know, when you first started or like when you first started like getting compensated for your work, is it like you, is there like a lot of back and forth or are you kind of getting what you are happy with? I wouldn't say that it, it's always positive, um, but I would say that because my numbers speak for themselves, I'm able to leverage, you know, what I want and I can ask for it. I may not always get it, but I'm, it's certainly like, uh, it is absolutely in a total place of privilege to be able to say that I can ask for it, right? Um, but generally speaking though, Ara, um, we as um, writers, um, reporters or journalists in Canada are quite severely underpaid. Like it's just the, um, the, the industry and the audience isn't just, it's not, it's not as the same as the US, right? Where you have 10 times the population which is way more um, money and investments and um, branding and advertising uh, money involved, right? So, um, like, I'm 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 happy where I am, and I'm I'm happy that I was able to get to where I am from where I started. Um, but if I move to the U.S., I could be earning my earning potential would be a lot higher. Now that kind of with the power of the internet, just like the world of content changing, like I see things like Substack and just you know, people being able to build audiences internationally using social media platforms and just things like that. Do you not think it's possible as a content creator, especially someone like yourself with this unique positioning and story that you have, that you could build, I mean, if money was your focus and you want to make more money while obviously telling, doing good by telling these stories that nobody's telling, uh, do you think that's not possible or are you starting to see that change, especially as being a contractor versus like a full-time employee? Totally possible. Um, I have the audience. I, I know my my weekly um, my so my newsletter subscriptions climb every week. It still goes up every week by a large number. Um, just just by having the URL in my bio on Instagram and Twitter, by only just doing that, it climbs every week because people see the content and they want more, so they subscribe. Um, so I'm again, I, I can say this because I I understand and accept my privilege. I've earned this, and I, I'm able to say that I could pivot and do that. I could. I could definitely do a newsletter and, and not worry about everything else. Um, and so it, it may be something down the road, but I, I don't want to sound like a contrarian, but I also, it feels like everyone's jumping on the newsletter bandwagon. Mm. So it just kind of, it's when everyone's doing it, it's kind of boring. Um, you know, it's like, I feel like if, if people are doing it, they've got their space in it. They're doing an amazing job. Like I want to do something else. Um, uh, but I, I get, a, I get weekly, if not, I would say not daily, but weekly requests to reboot the newsletter, which I haven't done for some time, just because I've got so many different projects on the go right now. But um, to answer your question, yeah, I mean, if you work, if you work at it long enough, I, the as long as you have a voice, right? It's all about having that unique, independent voice, and people, people that when they when they listen to you or they read your content, they know who you are and what you like and how you sound. Once you have a voice and you are honest and open to sharing that voice and being yourself, you can definitely pivot and, and start your own um, independent thing for sure. I, I think the timing is right. I think people are looking for those voices now more than ever because 
they want representation, they want to be represented, right? So you, you can easily find an audience if, if you do have that voice. And I, I feel like with kind of your unique voice, I just feel like the world of content is changing where people are not really looking at TV as much. Like they're looking, they might find your segment, you know, at the CBC, but mm-hmm. it might, it's most likely going to be through social media or like, you know, online somewhere versus like actually watching the segment. Um, I feel like you're going to get a ton of reach there, but I feel like you're on this trajectory. You know, I know you've been on this path for a while, but I feel like, I don't know if you like to be compared to him, but like, I can see you as an Anthony Bourdain or something like that, creating more visual content, storytelling, telling these stories that nobody's telling. Is that something you see like in your future? Well, I, I mean, I appreciate the comparison. Um, um, I, I don't know if I see myself doing a travel show as a host um, or a host in general. I don't know. I just feel like, I feel like that um, time has passed. This idea of kind of helicoptering into a culture and then even if you're empathetic, even if you're like being respectful, I think the stories need to be told by the people that live in these places as opposed to someone that's like jumping around the world. Um, I mean, I, I, I've had some ideas on how I would approach it and I have pitched it in the past, but I, this is like five, six years ago where I would, I said, you know, this is, this is how I think we should approach the next level of food storytelling on an international level and be more empathetic. But I, I think overall um, with Bourdain passing, I think, I think that chapter is closed in, in food uh, storytelling. I, you know, like the, the really interesting thing about um, two prominent food writers, two prominent food people passing away within three months of each other, uh, Jonathan Gold and Anthony Bourdain, is that there was this noticeable, this palpable shift in this the, the storytelling from one generation to, to another. Now you have all these young, really amazing, interesting voices that are doing very different things with their food storytelling. And they're not traveling the world, jumping into like Vietnam for seven days and filming something. They're doing it in a very different way. And they're kind of, they're, they're exposing the inequities and uh, the, the the systemic sort of like oppression and the issues that are in the industry. Uh, they're highlighting a lot of things that were kind of hidden away before in terms of like toxic max- masculinity or like um, people not getting paid well, like all these other issues that we were, we kind of glossed over in favor of the dish and like the story of the dish and the allure of the dish now is coming to, to focus. And I, I feel like, um, because it's coming to focus now and because the emphasis is now on why, 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 instead of where, 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 I think that boat has sailed. I think, you know, like what I'm more interested in doing now is um, I want to find ways to produce content where the people that are the right people to tell the stories can tell them. I want to throw the mic to them. I want to hold the camera to them because I'm really good at that. I'm really good at being able to to set up the visuals and build a storyboard and build a story around someone's uh, true experiences. Um, so that's what I like to do. I, like to, I, I prefer to be behind the camera, I think, um, for the foreseeable future. Are, are we gonna be anticipating some kind of Netflix documentary or, or show or something where you're in the future where you're, you're telling it that way or you're not? Yeah, yeah. Um, without giving it away, there are some things in the works. Um, I think the most important oh. thing now is that I'm working on my memoir, okay. um, which still a ways off, but um, that's my, my, the, my the, the big project that I want to work on because I feel like I have a unique story to tell here in terms of 
my upbringing, um, this trauma that I've gone through in in in, in my, as a child, and how that that trauma has kind of like shaped the way I see the world, and the way that um, um, food has kind of like helped me navigate the world. Um, so I'm working on that, um, and that is a very uh, exhaustive sort of um, process because you, when you look inwards, you discover so many things about yourself that like you you have to bring to the surface because you have to inspect it and you have to like relive it. And that could bring its own like side effect of trauma and um, and it could be degrading to mental health. So um, I, I thought I could do that and do a couple of other things on the side, but it turns out I between um, editing for the LCBO, CBC, shooting videos here and there and writing a memoir, um, that's kind of what I'm working on right now. But um, there, there are things that are coming out um, in the next year and two uh, that thankfully has will give me the opportunity to flex my muscles in new ways to still do the storytelling that I do, to be able to still say, um, here are hidden spaces, um, unknown spaces that, uh, and unknown topics, unknown people that we're not talking about that we should talk about. And here's the mic handed over to them so they can tell their story. Love it. I'm looking forward to it. I know probably many people listening to this will be as well. Um, in terms of, you know, like the core of what you do, you're like, you focus on people in the restaurant space. And obviously COVID has really hammered that space and really exposed a lot of, you know, inequalities or just things happening in that space that need to be improved. And also I've closed down a lot, a lot of places because financially these places just, you know, were already on the kind of brink and, you know, COVID was kind of that final straw or whatever it was. Um, how do you see the future of the restaurant industry? Like, I look at it from a tech perspective, just because like I'm in the tech space and I see like platforms, you know, like you have ghost kitchens and, you know, you, there's like all these trends happening. What, what's, what's your take on the future of, you know, restaurants, dining, food? Because, you know, you talked about Toronto, we're being so, we're so spoiled. I was joking with like my wife Claudia around over the weekend where I'm pretty decisive about a lot of things, but on the weekend when like we typically order out food, like on Uber Eats or something, um, I'm, it takes me about an hour to look through everything to figure out, you know, just like you said, like, what am I feeling like? What, what are my emotions? Like, do I just feel like some kind of more junky food or do I want like something like Ethiopian food? Um, so anyways, what's your take on the future of food? And let's hear that, yeah. Well, I think the pandemic has, uh, the, the, the big, biggest trend with the pandemic is that it's, it's exposed all of the, the broken sort of elements of our system, right? Whether it's, in this case, we're talking about the restaurant industry, the fact that like, you know, uh, people weren't paid well, they weren't treated well before, before the pandemic. The pandemic just made it worse because it exposed it. And now the biggest conversation in the food world is now that we're s somewhat crawling to get back to some sense of normalcy, there are a lot of people that don't want to go back into the restaurant industry for a variety of reasons, right? I mean, like some people will say serve, but I think it's a very small, small population of people that have collected serve that don't wanna go back. But generally a lot of people don't wanna go back because they hated it. They hated working like low paying jobs, long hours, not being treated well by their employers, right? So I think it's too soon to tell what is gonna happen, but we are in the middle of, I don't wanna say a renaissance of the, the food industry, but we are in the middle of some sort of reboot. And I think we can definitely look at cities in the US to get a sense of what's coming on the pipe because they're, they're about a month or two just ahead of us because of you know the, the way the pandemic has, has flown through cities and the way cities have reopened. 
So right now, I mean, the talk is that like, you know, um, with the pandemic, um, maybe restaurants have realized and chefs have realized that they need to have smaller menus. They don't need to have bigger menus because they need to do the math and manage their margins accordingly and pay their employees better by having a tighter menu where they can control the margins on a smaller number of ingredients and a smaller number of dishes as opposed to like six or seven pages. Also, um, like, another, oh, sorry, I, I was going to quickly mention there also as well, um, you can maybe tack it onto your answer, but around the environment as well, like just accessibility of like food or freshness of food, um, you know, like you're, you're also seeing this, uh, not renaissance, but like emergence of kind of urban farming or like hydroponic farming and just things like that. So sorry, just continue. But I want to kind of bring that up quickly as well. Yeah, no, no, that's a great point because um, the, the trend generally is that like, it feels like everything is closing in on a smaller geography, geography or a smaller sort of community driven restaurant, right? Mm-hmm. So smaller menu, the employees are probably employed from the community so that the money goes back to the community. Um, they are neighborhood type restaurants that are going to be more successful because people have realized during the pandemic when they miss restaurants, the restaurants that they miss the most are the ones they would frequent, mm-hmm. right? So um, maybe the neighborhood restaurant with a smaller menu that pays uh, livable wages to employees is going to make a comeback. Then there's also like um, the talk, uh, the idea, idea of how during the pandemic, a lot of <clears throat> cities allowed restaurants to do uh, to-go cocktails and to have like um, some sort of bodega type setup, like a very New York style bodega setup where you can buy ingredients from the restaurant. You can buy wine and booze, a beer from the restaurant. And maybe this hybrid concept will stick around because it's another revenue stream for the restaurant to make money, right? Not just by serving you when you're sitting down. And I, I frankly, I, I mean, selfishly, I love the idea of restaurants also being bodegas because for, to me as a cook, what it means is that you can probably get some ingredients that you would never be able to buy anywhere else. Because if the chef behind the taco restaurant is also um, selling his marinades, selling his pre-made uh, shells or whatever, that's a unique um, feature for me. Like I can't find that in a, in a, in a grocery store, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and if I like his food, I would w- absolutely want to take that canvas and take it home and, and do something else with it. So. There is, there is talk that all the things that we have sort of um, been resilient with and adapted to are going to stick around in some shape or form. It's just a matter of how much. I really think that restaurants are going to um, stick with the delivery, even though um, delivery services like Uber Eats and DoorDash just like pillage the industry and take a huge cut of, of every order. I feel like it's a necessary evil for a lot of restaurants because there is certainly a large demographic of people that prefer to order takeout through delivery apps. Um, there's arguably, I mean, there are like various stats that say that like millennials and Gen Zers are more, they, they order out way more on takeout than Gen Xers do for whatever reason, depending on the city. So it's too soon to tell where we're going, but I think, I don't even want to use the word exciting, but I think it's interesting that you and I are in the middle of this reboot. We're, we're seeing it in real time, like every day. Um, and we're also seeing it because chefs and restaurateurs are not just resilient, but they're at their breaking point. Like they're, you know, like they've gone through a year and a half of this now and the people have exited the industry. They have um, closed restaurants. They have completely retooled their menus. 
they've gone from like doing fine dining to serving fried chicken and burgers, right? Um, so, you know, it'd be good to have this conversation in a year to see if we've learned anything, like if we actually have learned to be empathetic with uh, our employees and pay them a better wage. Um, if the customers are also okay with that, because customers need to be okay with menu prices going up, right? And menus shrinking. Um, there's, a, there's a lot happening at the same time is my, my answer. I think if you're, I think consumers are becoming more conscious or like trying to be more socially conscious. And it also maybe comes from a place of privilege where you can actually afford it. But like for me, when I go to restaurants, because I, my, my parents were in that, I was in there as well. Uh, I tip very well. I already tried to like, like over the top um, just because I know a lot of compensation comes from that as well. Uh, And also like another point, the analogy I see between delivery and kind of like in-room dining is similar to what we're seeing with like retail, where we see, you know, the explosion of e-commerce or like online shopping versus kind of in-store. And I feel like to your, I think what you kind of alluded to was, um, I think restaurants that will survive or do well are the ones that will provide some kind of experience um, that you can't, like you said, like you talked about the bodega experience where you're getting these things that's unique that you can't get anywhere else, where I feel like these restaurants that offer like unique menus or like unique experience or just a place where you want to gather with your friends and family because there's a social element to kind of going out going out and eating as well I think those will kind of do well but like you said nobody knows but I feel like the restaurant industry will follow suit of what kind of the retail space is kind of going through where you know like you said e-commerce is here to stay and it's going to continue to grow so will probably delivery but there will be a need for these meeting places for people to engage socially, meet friends, do meet family, like restaurants still have that appeal. So um, we'll see what happens, I guess, in yeah. terms of the restaurant space. And I mean, even the, you, you touched on ghost kitchens and ghost kitchens. I feel like they were hot for a minute. They're not as hot anymore. And I'm, I'm kind of thankful for that because I want to know who's making my food. Mm-hmm. Not the, the cook, but I want to know who is representing um, the brand that I'm eating from. But also one of the biggest sort of trends in the last year has been pop-ups, right? Like Instagram and Facebook pop-ups. Um, it was there before. Like, you know, I, I would order Italy from the lady in Scarborough um, that lived at um, Markham and Ellesmere and go pick it up every Friday. But because of the pandemic, there have been so many um, moms and dads, uh, sisters and brothers that have launched these food businesses where they're making one thing and one thing only and you have to order it by like wednesday at 12 p.m to pick it up on saturday oh kitchen gorilla yeah have you had kitchen gorilla's gelato yeah yeah quesera quesera is great um, yeah, I, yeah. I was one of the first people to have it when he for like a couple of years ago when he was toying with it um i mean look roshan kanagraja is like uh, a prime example of like you know what the younger Tamil cooks are going to do in the city and where they're going to take the food, uh, which has been kind of somewhat stagnant for the last 30 years because we've been eating to kind of like remember things and nostalgia. But guys like um, Roshan and Murali and Iranga from Lakeshore Food, they're going to show us the future of, you know, their interpretation of their identity and perspective on Tamil cuisine. Yeah, I'm super excited about that. Money can be hard to come by, but here is a $100 opportunity for you. Join my free newsletter for free exclusive content and a free chance to win $100 when I hold special draws. Did I mention that it's free? Um, in terms of like, yeah, you said talked about legacy. How about your personal legacy? Um, how would you want to be like remembered by your friends and family? 
Oh, um, it's a hard question. I mean, um, I guess I want to be remembered as someone that um, made people, made my friends laugh um, and was always honest with them if they ever needed my opinion on something or if they wanted someone to talk to. And I want my friends to to remember me me by the 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 how happy they were from eating my food from their swelling bellies mm-hmm. um that's i think that would be my legacy i mean like my my writing work my food work i mean it is what it is i think if 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 i were to touch on that maybe my legacy should be that it has inspired you to look in your own backyard for amazing international food in the city so uh, and regardless of where you live, if it has inspired you to like pay closer attention to the addresses when you're walking down the street or when you're driving, that I would be happy with that. If you had um, a chance to, you know, because you talked about one of your regrets, and I want to touch on this a bit more, is if you had a chance to go back to talk to 16-year-old Suresh, what oh. would be the advice that you would give him? So 16-year-old Suresh is just now, I guess, a CCNA. Cisco certified network um, associate, um, Microsoft certified engineer, um, just about to like, I guess, like learn about teaching and this passion for sharing knowledge. I would tell that Suresh, um, take it easy. Um, remember to socialize. Remember that friends are an important backbone of your life and you need to uh, cultivate relationships. You need to respect people and, and respect their times and build relationships that will last a lifetime um, and pursue this, this, this skill set that you have. Stay in IT because you're really good at it. It can be, it can, it can you know, take you places. Um, it can make you successful um, and you can always moonlight and do your writing on the side. And in that case, if you did that, if you wanted to write about food or eat at, at restaurants, it's, it's still a hobby. It's still something you're doing for fun. And you could do it on your own terms and not sacrifice your livelihood. And because you know, I'm, I'm looking back now, I've been writing about food for close to 20 years, but it's been a, you know, a long grind, a, long, a, slow, a slow and long grind um, versus when I was in IT. It's like, and I saw success quite quickly at the time because um, it's just a different industry. And, you know, like I was, I was really good at it. So I shouldn't, I should not have left it when I left it. I love that it's an honest answer. Um, and you know, the last question before we kind of jump into the last segment is what's a piece of advice that you would give to any fellow you know, Tamil creators listening to this podcast? Yeah, so I think um, going back to finding a voice, it's like, you know, it's not just a topic. Don't just think about what you want to cover. So if, if, you're, if you're getting into writing about food, um, don't just pick you know, what type of food you want to write about, but what is your perspective on the world? What is, what is, what is, what is the angle here? How do you want to cover it? Think about what your interests are and where they lie. So are you a person that loves to eat uh, sushi? And it's like you are obsessing over rice and vinegar rice and um, different types of fish and how it's presented meticulously and the art form. Then use that voice. That's the voice right there. If you like sushi, don't start a sushi site and then review like tacos every Monday because you want to, to diversify your portfolio. I find that like having a niche is underrated uh, because it will become a strength very quickly, but it'll also it'll also expose your personality really fast because it's something you're really interested in with to begin with. So you know, focus on that. Find what you love, and just 
like let that blossom like focus on uh, what interests you that's a great segue into our final segment Suresh which is called creator from confessions where I'm going to ask you a bunch of statements or I guess slash questions and you're going to give me uh, um, the first answer that kind of pops to mind you ready yeah awesome favorite Tamil food um, rice and curry I think um, rice and curry because uh, it changes from place to place from person to person everyone has a different interpretation of it so I would never get bored um, you know it's so I want you to picture like a mound of rice in the middle and all around it so it's surrounded by dollops of like different types of stews whether it's protein or vegetable whether it's um, like a like a liquid stew or like more of like a granular cooked down rendang type thing um, or it could be like fried vegetables it could be like a short eat it changes from cook to cook because I think a rice and curry is a great interpretation of one person's view of Tamil cuisine and nostalgia because they make, they put on the plate what they grew up with, all their memories in one place. So like the eggplant could remind them of their grandma, the mutton curry could remind them of their mom, the, and maybe they like like the, um, the, the fried fish because that's what they like to eat. So you get, you get like a, a, a person's story, a life story on one plate. Um, it's got everything. It's got spice. It's got textures. It's got, you know, like every bite could be different. Like so every, every part of this journey from the first mouthful to the last is not going to taste the same, which I mean, as a food person, it's like, that's like the best thing you can ask for. Right. Like two, no two bites are the same. Love it. Uh, something that scares you. Um, so that scares me. Um, I guess disappointing my son at this point, it's like now as a father, my son is 18 months old. Um, you, can all, you already get like glimpses of him looking up to you and wanting to do what daddy does, especially in the kitchen. So I guess like just trying to like, you know, make sure that like I equip him um, with the critical thinking that he will need for his life um, and equip him with empathy. It's like, how do I, how do I teach a human being to be as empathetic as possible with everything that they do? Because if we're all empathetic with everything we do, the world would be such a, a better place, right? Um, but it's easy to not, not be empathetic. It's easy to be selfish because the world kind of caters to that. So um, my, I guess my yeah, biggest fear is like, I don't want to miss a beat here. I want to make sure that like, you know, I tried to coach him in, in the most appropriate and best way. That's a great answer. My uh, favorite show you're watching. Um, so I actually don't watch a lot of Netflix just because I feel like it just got so saturated with, um, with uh, the same kind of content over and over. So I actually do a lot of, well, I listen to a lot of podcasts, but I also do a lot of um, watch, uh, video watching on YouTube. I, I produce a lot of videos for different companies uh, in the food space. So YouTube kind of like allows me to kind of just get a sense of what is out there, what people are doing. Um, so like there is a channel called uh, Chinese Cooking Demystified, which is a very popular channel. Um, and it takes you through regional Chinese cooking in a very approachable and thoughtful way. It's not a glossy show. It's not like this personality, but it's not like a person talking to a camera. Uh, it's highly, highly based on technique. Um, um, so I've been, I've been hooked on that. I watch at least an episode a day on it. Um, over the last couple of years, I've been trying to like, oh yeah, for, for, I think for about five years now, I've been trying to learn a new technique every week or every, every other week in terms of cooking. So this has kind of like helped me um, with the Chinese uh, techniques. Got it. A place you're itching to travel to after the pandemic is over? Oh, definitely going back to Malaysia. Uh, I think my favorite place in the world is uh, Malaysia. 
Uh, I'm I am obviously um, Sri Lankan Tamil, uh, but my grandmother's roots are in Malaysia, and I did a lot of soul searching there um, a few years ago. And um, I, I mean, Toronto is incredibly diverse, but Malaysia is just it's diverse on a very very different note. Apples to oranges, but you will eat something and it will look so familiar, but taste so different because of the Arab influence, the Indian influence, the Sri Lankan influence, the Chinese influence, Japanese influence, all in one place. Um, and it's not fusion. It just, everything is really kind of like melds together, um, comes together really nicely. I could never get bored of eating through Malaysia. Yeah, it's on my list. Um, a fellow Tamil creator you want to give a shout out to? Um, I, I would say like all the second generation cooks in the city right now. Um, I've been writing about food for close to 20 years. I've lived in this country for 20, 30 years now. Um, it's it's kind of it's crazy when you're like growing up as a food person, you're eating all these amazing foods and you're like, wow, Toronto is the most multicultural city in the world. The food seems incredible, but all the while you're waiting and longing for your own um, people, your, your own like Sri Lankan Tamils, the young younger folks to step up and do something and show like a new interpretation of, uh, of food. Because I mean, yeah, the nostalgia is there with the older stuff, but I want to see something new. I, I see new Chinese food, new Malaysian food, uh, new uh, Ethiopian food. And when I say new, I mean like new interpretations of it. So like a new perspective on, on it. Um, and this was very, very lacking in Toronto up until literally three, four years ago where we have, are now seeing cooks that are of age, second generation in some cases, in many cases, that don't have the emotional baggage, that are, grew up with Jamaicans and grew up with Italians. So they're using like, you know, like tomatoes and scotch bonnet uh, peppers and they're cooking, making Sri Lankan food like nobody's made before. It's like really exciting. It's, we're gonna be talking about Sri Lankan food in a very different way in the next couple of years in Toronto but in a very, very different and a very exciting way. It's, it's not gonna be about where to go to get mutton rolls. It's gonna be about, oh my God, who is like the hot new young uh, women male chef that is doing Sri Lankan food in a different way. So we talked about a few, uh, Murali Thambuthiri, uh, um, Roshan Kanagaraja, uh, Iranga Harath. Uh, Iranga is the chef behind Lakeshore Food Company, which is like one of the best new food pop-ups to launch in Toronto last year. Um, I would, Highly recommend that if you're if you're interested in food or if you want to represent fellow Tamils, go on Instagram and like look at Roshan's feed. It's Kitchen Kitchen Gorilla, and then follow. Go through the sort of rabbit hole and find other personalities that are commenting on his stuff because there's there's an exciting scene out there like right now. I'm I'm, I'm so proud of these kids. Great. Um, <clears throat> your favorite childhood memory? I just realized these answers are really long for you. Yeah, you want yeah. me to? No, no, these are great. Yeah, you keep it. I mean, keep it a little bit shorter if you can. But these are great answers. Okay. Like I'm enjoying listening to. Um, favorite childhood memory would be like being like the chutney kid um, at my grandmother and mother's dosa pop up. So, long story short, every summer or every season or something, my mom and my uh, grandmother would host like a fundraiser at the local church, and they would set up a dosa stand and they would sell dosas, and I would be like the the chutney kid. So, like after my mom would. Um, make the dosa and put it on a plate. She would hand me the plate and I would put the sambar and the chutney on it before it goes out. And it's a great memory because they always had the longest line out of anyone else, which I found fascinating. And now I know why, because the food is amazing. 
but also people would take the food, they would walk away, they would go sit on um, a rock or something, they would eat the food and they would come back with their empty plates and like want to like hug my grandma or shake her hand. Um, so seeing that like connection of like how food directly immediately impacted them, right? Like my mom and my grandma put something on a plate, they ingested it, like they, they put it in their body and they came back and they were like, you know, almost teary eyed. Um, that is a singular reason of, if, if I could, could distill why I do what I do, it's probably because of that memory. What's a purchase you've made that you recently splurged on in the last few years that you have no regret about? Okay, so a walk. I would say like, um, I am a, um, a, a simplest when it comes to what I want to have in my kitchen. I feel like every cook should have a couple of tools uh, and that they can use in a variety of different ways. Um, a, a wok comes in handy for so many different things. Um, if you're stir frying, whatever's in the freezer because you want a really qu quick meal, even if you're frying eggs, even if, you're, if you want to like repurpose like rice that was left over from the day before, um, or if you want to deep fry, or if you want to make like crab curry, a wok is truly indispensable because it teaches you uh, not just how to like make things in one pot, but it, it really teaches you how to use heat as a mechanism to um, move the cooking forward or to stall the cooking. The wok really allows you to move things around and use heat as uh, an igniter, if you will. Got it. And what's a pet peeve of yours? Um, a pet peeve would probably be people that are indecisive when it comes to ordering food. That's me. <laughs> people that spend an hour on Uber Eats. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, no, I would say like generally speaking, um, a pet peeve is um, in my field, I guess, non-honest storytelling. So like, man, like I, I get it that this is the, the new thing, but like I really, really do not like when people um, shill for restaurants on Instagram and they go to a restaurant because the restaurant paid them and they present this elaborate spread of like so much food, which is probably going to go to waste. Um, so there's so many crimes being committed here. You're taking money away from restaurants where you shouldn't be right now. You're wasting so much food. You're also not being honest. You're not telling me exactly what that taco tastes like. Um, that's a big peeve of mine, just a lack of honesty that seems to be quite prevalent right now in, in storytelling. If you knew that you were going to uh, die tomorrow, I regret that you would have. Oh, I, I mean, if I was going to die tomorrow, I would regret not being able to see my son grow up, I think, plain and simple. Um, it's certainly nothing food related. I mean, I've eaten everything I could possibly would have wanted to eat what what, what I would have wanted to have eaten by now, you know, um, fine dining or not. But like, I mean, like, yeah, not being able to see my family grow would be, yeah, that would be it. A celebrity whose life you only experience for one day. Oh, um, I really don't know here. Okay, so for one day, um, who would you pick, Aura? A celebrity? Who? That's a good one. Um, right? Like, I don't know. Like, I, I can't really think of someone. I mean, I think I think when Obama was president, maybe like for a day just to see what that looks like, or you know, um, I, I feel like I would want to go in the complete opposite direction and pick someone that I absolutely do not like because I want to know uh, how they, that's they, good right um yeah. so like not like a Trump but um I would I would probably pick you know what um maybe like yeah I would probably pick like the, the most hated politician in the U.S. because I would just want to know what their perspective is like for a day and how they could do what they do and having a complete lack of empathy right 
that's, that's my favorite. I think that's probably one of my favorite answers. Oh, that's probably my favorite answer because um, it just reminds me of two stories that I heard where like um, it is reflecting of your statement. One is, I think he was, I'm going to get the story wrong, but he was a black man in the South and he basically, you know, he befriended KKK members just to kind mm-hmm. of understand um, like where they're coming from and like thousands of them or hundreds of them left the KKK after becoming friends with him. And I think the second one was, I think she was a Middle Eastern Muslim. Wait, I think uh, she was a, sorry. Davis, Davis, right? Daryl. I forgot Davis. his name, but it was a great yeah. story. And the yeah. second one was, I think she was a Muslim filmmaker. She uh, basically interviewed far right, like militia mm-hmm. or like, you know, um, people. And just to kind of, again, understand why they would hate someone like her. And it was just really powerful. Mm-hmm. Just It's really easy and um, convenient to hate somebody through a keyboard or at a distance, but it's different to yeah. tell them to their face why you don't like them. And it really, it, we need, when they did a follow-up on some of the people she interviewed, not all of them, there's like a few, some of them just kind of left these far-right organizations after meeting her. So just the humanizing of the others that you might like, you know, um, right away just kind of dismiss. Because, yeah. you know, often when people hate or, you know, have these like really extreme thoughts, there's there's some human or emotional element where that hatred or dislike came from. And if you get to the bottom of that, everyone at the end of the day wants to be part of a tribe and, you know, um, you know, they want to know that, hey, if they're going to leave the far right, they want to know that there's a community of people that will not, you know, hate them for their past, but embrace them for their, the change they're trying to make. So yeah. anyways, that was a long follow, but I love your answer. Easy to hide a keyboard and, and yeah. just you know, spew that hate. And I feel like there's a lot of that going on right now in, every industry, especially in, in the journalism and the food industry too. And I feel like if we just took a little bit of time to get to know the other person, um, understand that they, you know, they probably, they have their own lives and they're going through uh, the, their own things, right? So it's like not having that empathy and by being an armchair expert or like, you know, just being a couch Rambo, as I call it, um, is not conducive to building communities. I just love your answer. So love it. And the final the question, in this segment is just a public service announcement that you want to leave our audience with anything else that you, you know, maybe it's a more advice or just a final thought before we kind of wrap things up. Um, okay. Well, I mean, restaurants are going through a hard time right now. Um, you know, it looks like we're entering the fourth wave of the pandemic and um, I have to understand. I mean, like even before the pandemic restaurants were operating on a very, very thin margin. Uh, it was not a, a, a positive space. And now even more so, with uh, angry customers because uh, customers want to go to restaurants and they want to be, um, they want everything they want super conveniently and they don't understand masking and, and social distancing. Uh, restauranters have been given that burden to have to deal with that on top of everything else. I would say my, um, my advice is, you know, find your favorite local restaurant and just like give them some patron- patronage, just visit them regularly, um, support, the ones in your immediate community, because those are the ones we're going to miss the most when they're gone. Um, restaurants are going to have a shorter lifespan. Um, people are retiring. The industry is getting more and more challenging to work in. Climate change is bringing its own set of problems to the food world. Um, so we're going to lose a lot of the stuff that we've taken for granted. And um, so my advice is enjoy it right now. Support the restaurants that you care about and the ones that you like, because they need your help right now. Love it. That's like a great way to like wrap this awesome episode. Uh, Suresh, thank you for making time out of your uh, you know busy kind of uh, 
day with all the projects and being a father. Uh, we definitely appreciate, you know, I appreciate you kind of hopping on. And for those of you listening, you know, appreciate you guys listening. So uh, Suresh, if anybody wants to connect with you, uh, you know, maybe it's for advice or just, you know, maybe hit, hit you up for a tip. Um, what's the best way for someone to stay connected with you or what you're up to? Well, I want to thank you for bringing me on the podcast. I'm a fan of your podcast and I've been listening to it since you launched it. Um, so it's an honor and a privilege to be here to talk to you. And uh, we've been talking for quite some time, which is great, which is amazing. Great um, if people, yeah, if people want to find me, um, I am at Suresh uh, on Twitter and Instagram. Um, SureshDoss.com is my site. And you can listen to me on CBC every Thursday around 7.45. But uh, Twitter and Instagram is usually where you get the loud bulk of what I do. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Suresh. And um, for those of you listening, we'll see you on the next episode.